This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's radiotherapy time on RRR. And today you have Nurse Epi Penn at the helm while Dr Malpractice spends some time with his son. So today in the studio we have some very special guests. We've got Dr Nick Carr who's a regular and a very special guest. Morning, Nick. Morning, Epi. How are you? Very good, thank you. And next to Nick, we have Miss Diagnosis, who's a medical student. Good morning, Miss Diagnosis. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And then a brand new person to the radio first time is Dr Nadia Chaves, who's um, going to talk to us about some special things, but I'm not going to introduce her things yet. Um, And then we've got Dr Kent, who is um, in charge of the panel, and he is a total marvel at doing all the buttons. Morning, Kent. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just to kick off the show, I'm going to do a little bit of a catch up. Is that the right time to do this now? Or we, yes? Okay, good. Um, so, this is something that really piqued my interest. So, I, um, about 10 days ago, I went to the Australian Society of Infectious Diseases Conference on the Gold Coast, and there was an uh, entomologist who's an insect fanatic, called Dr Peter Ryan, who told us about this amazing work called the World Mosquito Program. So it's a not-for-profit initiative led by Monash University in Melbourne, which is pretty good. And this World Mosquito Program um, is aiming to work in um, the global community to eradicate mosquito-borne diseases. Mm-hmm. And some of the diseases that I'm talking about that are viruses called Zika, Dengue and Chikungunya. And the special mosquito is the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Now, I have practised that three times this morning in front of the mirror. Did I get it right, Nadia? You got it right. Thank you. And this mosquito is responsible for transmitting these diseases. So you will all remember about Zika. That was um, a pretty terrible infection um, that is particularly in um, women with um, pregnant women and their unborn children. But usually it's a fairly mild illness and people do quite well afterwards. But in Australia, there have been a few cases and they were in far north Queensland. But as I want to um, reassure you, it's a um, a, a short-lived viral illness. But dengue is another mosquito-borne virus, is another illness. And I looked up this morning and there are 390 million people that have been infected, that get infected with the dengue virus each year. Now, I have to say that's a lot of people. And, again, you can do okay with dengue, but I have a sister that didn't do okay and she was hospitalised in Thailand with this. And so it presents as a flu-like illness, but it can be um, quite serious and people drop their platelets, which are blood cells that are responsible for clotting and deaths do occur. Um, yes, Miss Diagnosis. Am I right in saying that it's the second infection with dengue that's the really dangerous one? So it's not when you first get dengue, but it's if you've had it once before that you're really... That is absolutely at. correct. Nadia? Yes, that is correct. Yes, yes. Very good, Miss. Uh, miss. <laughs> <laughs> miss Diagnosis. Can I, can I pass my third year now? You, yeah. <laughs> So what I what the crux of this story is um, is this bacteria called Wal- Wolbachia, 
and it's a natural bacteria present in about 60% of the insect species. And it's not normally found in the Aedes aegypti mosquito. So what this amazing research has shown that if they introduce this bacteria into some of the into this specific mosquito, it makes it infertile. So it's safe for humans and animals in the environment and what I've read and what I heard this amazing guy speak about is when the male mosquito with Wolbachia mates with a female wild mosquito without Wolbachia, these females will have eggs that don't hatch and then therefore they can't reproduce. So this is incredibly um, exciting and it's got this this World Mosquito Program's got funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and all sorts of people. It's highly regarded. And one of the things that was really interesting was in 2016 in Townsville, the, um, there, was a, it, there was an initiative with school kids where they gave them, like, um, takeaway uh, Asian food in those little packets um, and they were called mozzie boxes. And these kids um, across this town, about six schools in Townsville, were given these mozzie boxes. And inside there were dried mosquito larvae and food. And they, they had put them in their backyards and then um, added water in, and put them in the sunshine. And then these mosquitoes grew and hatched and went out into the environment and stopped people, stopped mosquitoes being fertile made them sterile so that they couldn't they could make mosquitoes but they were ain't weren't able to reproduce anyway um the the kids were called Wolbachia warriors and they had little project sheets and it was the community went completely bonkers about doing this everybody wanted a mozzie box and anyway i just thought it was the most interesting story and it's this program has been so successful and they've monitored, they've collected the mosquitoes that have been spread and and monitored them and they, they're infertile. And it's, this program is working so well that they've also introduced it into Indonesia and some other countries where they, these mosquitoes cause havoc. It's interesting, isn't it, Epi, in this era where in health and medicine we're focusing more and more on the gut microbiome, the bacteria that are in the human gut and their role in health. We're now looking at the mosquito gut microbiome and saying if we can fiddle around with that, we can render the female mosquitoes infertile. It, it has that slightly alarming sense, though, when, when human beings start fiddling around with nature like this and interfering with things which are organic and so on. Uh, you wonder what the possible ramifications are. We always think, oh, this is a brilliant idea, let's render them all infertile. Um, but uh, I'm just a bit scared whether this well back here might have some other consequence that we don't know. Was there any talk at all about what the possible unintended consequences could be? No, I th- no I d- and it wasn't asked. And I think because it's also present in insects already, in 60% of insects and mosquitoes, so it's or it's when it's not a brand new introduction of a and tampering with nature. No, it, sound, it sounds pretty benign, but then so did a cane toad. Oh, jeepers, what a terrible comparison. Okay, well, anyway, I think that'll wrap me up for the show for my um, update. And I now have the great pleasure in introducing Dr Nadia Chaves, who's a general physician and infectious diseases physician. So she's a double qualified, super duper person. And she works at a public Melbourne, a Melbourne public hospital and is also a specialist in community health in a community health centre. 
providing care for people with refugee backgrounds and people who inject drugs. Nadia is pretty special because she's got, um, she works in health equity and patient-centred care and she's just started a behaviour change PhD as if she wasn't busy enough beforehand but now she's doing a PhD. She's only one month into this PhD but she's looking at um, uh, or working with the Monash Sustainable Development Unit and uh, that's also called the Behaviour Works and Safer Care Victoria. So Nadia, tell us about yourself and what you're doing and how you ever chose this topic for your PhD. Thanks for, so much for having me, Dr. Ebby Penn. And I, I just have to make a quick thank you to Radiotherapy because I think I've been listening to you over the last 20 years since I was a medical student, so that was a long time ago. So I have chosen to work in this area of person-centred care and I think I decided to do a PhD in it simply because I've been a bit disappointed with my profession and how people are being treated as Patients and they're often being our disease model, and especially in hospitals, is about what mat- what's the matter with the person rather than what matters to the person. I'm really keen in exploring and finding out and proving that when you look at what matters to the person, they actually get better. But I, the nice thing is, I'm not alone in that. So I'm working with Safer Care Victoria, who's the quality and safety branch. Um, attached um, with the Department of Health and they're an organisation that came about just over a year ago because of the tragic deaths that happened in Jerrywarra Hospital. A number of um, preventable deaths were seen in newborn babies across in this particular organisation and the inquiry actually showed there was a deficit in the quality and safety across Victorian public hospitals and that it wasn't just about the medical treatment but it was about patient engagement and it was about patient experience and a whole branch of safer care is looking at how to make patients as partners or consumers as partners in the healthcare system so I'm working with them and with Behaviour Works at Monash As a GP patient centred care is actually core to our business but perhaps for the listeners could you explain in more detail what you mean by the difference between patient centred care and disease centred care Yes, sure. So it's a it's a good question because uh, I don't think if you ask the general population, the public, they have they completely understand person centred care. It's like, well, when I go in, I'd love my doctor to actually know what matters to me and and what I'd like to get out of the consultation and, and what would make me feel better and to listen to me. Um, however, in our medical model of treatment, I find that especially in the hospital system, it's very disease focused. So someone will come in with a cough and suddenly they go down a respiratory pathway which everyone looks at the lung disease and the you know the smoking and the lung function tests and the various other tests 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 and forget perhaps that their breathlessness is related to them feeling anxious um and that never or you know what what really matters to them and if, if that question's asked early on um and we work out what what matters to the person in the context of their health issues but also their other issues um it's actually been shown that they can get better quicker and go home quicker. So, Nadia, what about the time factor in a really busy, diverse teaching hospital where you've got medical students and everybody following you around on a ward round? You know, what's, what, what 
can we do to improve that relationship between doctor and patient in any hospital setting? And I think that's the question I'm really looking at. I don't have a, a set question for the PhD, but it's a real challenge. I mean, we'd love to have all the time in the world to sit down and listen to what patients really want. Um, and the way the hospital system is set up at the moment, it's really hard to do that. Not only that, but um, doctors themselves are getting quite burnt out, they're overworked. Um, even the most caring person in the doctor in the world often finds that when they're going through the physician training program, they, they seem to lose a bit of heart and soul and, and lose and forget that reason that they became doctors in the first place. Not, all, not everyone, and there's a lot of amazing doctors around, but the system seems to be working against us a little bit. So that, that question of time is, I, I feel, a bit of a regular excuse that we doctors use. It's one which GPs use a lot. They say, oh, I don't have time to listen to that. So they did a study in general practice where they got the doctors just to shut up, ask the patient what they were there for and wait and see how long the patient spoke for. And on average, it was 30 to 40 seconds. It doesn't take very long to listen to people and hear what they want to say. But we have this sort of fantasy as doctors that if we let patients actually have their say about themselves, if they let us actually talk about what matters to them, we're going to be there forever. It's just not true. Yes, in fact, they've actually demonstrated that... um well, they've done a couple of studies. One is, is actually seeing how long it took the doctor to interrupt the patient. And eight seconds on average <laughs> is how long the patient usually gets to speak for. And the other thing is when you allow that patient the 30 to 40 seconds, the consultation times are actually shorter and they're more effective. And, I mean, I get taught this at medical school. In our communication workshops, you know, I would be failed if I interrupted within eight seconds However, I have noticed now that transitioning from the sort of school-based lecture system into the hospitals, you know, I go on ward rounds with the doctors and the first couple of times I went on ward rounds, it was pretty shocking. I couldn't make heads or tails of what was being said. I had so many questions for the doctors and I was supposed to understand what was going on. Yeah, and, and this is what I'm, I'm wondering as well because medical school students do get taught proper communication skills and there's something that happens when they hit the hospital system. Um, it kind of gets spread out of them and I'm not sure why that is. Um, uh, I was given a good tip for going to see patients in the ward and one of them, and this particular one, was to lower yourself down next to the patient. So sit so there's not that peering over them and that spatial superiority vibe that you give when you look down at someone. So I think that's been a really great one. And I think there has been research into this as well, the difference between a doctor sitting in the room and standing. I think they've done standardised consultations where the consultation goes for exactly the same amount of time on a hospital ward round. However, in one instance, the doctor sits and in the other, the doctor stands. And the patients all report that the doctor spent you know, almost twice as long when they were sitting despite it being a standardised consultation. Absolutely. The other thing that we did, we actually did a little role modelling with some of the doctors at a um, workshop um, about a year or two ago at our hospital where we made the consultants lay in the bed and 10 people stood around them. And, and we did this to demonstrate that the sort of communication round that we had was not really... Uh, we asked them, how did you feel? And they all felt quite intimidated, actually. And so we've changed the structure of the ward round so that just a key... We're, we're hoping to try and find one or two key people that you, can be your key person during your stay. And that person comes and speaks to you every day and gets to know you. Um, and it's challenging within the structure of the hospital environment, but it's so much better than having 10 people towering over you and speaking across you as well. 
Is, is that dedicated to one person in a multidisciplinary team? So it could be the nurse, it could be a medical student? Absolutely. Oh, terrific. Mm. So um, we know that there's a very structural element to how communication occurs. And um, again, we talk about this a lot in primary care and general practice, that to make effective patient-centred care, person-centred care, you don't want a big barrier between yourself and, and the person you're trying to talk to. So you don't want some great desk sticking there as a wooden barrier between you with the doctor in some big plush leather chair on one side and the patient in a little cracked plastic thing on the other side implying a hierarchy and a barrier to the communication and so in primary care almost always you'll find that the desk is against a wall and the consultation is occurred what we call around the corner of the desk and yet in hospitals it is still completely standard in outpatient settings that you've got this monstrous great desk with an important doctor on one side and the diminished little unimportant patient on the other side so there's a very structural element that impedes this communication right at the start. Absolutely. So, so um, because I work in a public hospital, it'd be a great topic for a grand round or something, you know, where are we going? What are your thoughts about disseminating this fantastic information and patient respect kind of model that you're talking about? So I have to, I have to say that I did hold a grand round last year at the hospital that Terrific. I was at and we also held a whole forum and I didn't write, do it on my own, so I worked with a patient advocate and a consumer and we we worked out together the program now i wonder if you could guess how many doctors attended (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately no and it's difficult because of time constraints and everything else but we asked i actually asked the doctors well what would what do you think would person-centered care is and what would you like to learn about it and um you know more about communication and more about motivational interviewing and there were some kind of technical things in there but actually when it came down to it not that many people did attend and so that's a challenge I look at that as an opportunity to improve though so what in your PhD I mean this is, must be an incredibly hard area to research do you have any idea what aspect of this you're going to look at over the, how many years are you going to spend doing this <laughs> yeah three years full time wow. at the moment so I'm, I'm really lucky I'm working with an incredible organisation called Behaviour Works so they look at behaviour change um, across a number of different... They're part of the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, which means they only do research on sustainable development goals. So I'm working with other PhD students looking at behaviour change and things from climate change to social inclusion. Um, and I'm just going to... I need to narrow it down to something really small, and I haven't yet got that. Um, but for me, it would be great to have a low-hanging fruit of person-centred care. What would be the absolute minimum standard... Um, something that does come to mind, though, is, is use of interpreters and speaking to a patient in a way that they understand. And you think this would be a no-brainer, but actually use of interpreters we know in, in the hospital system is abysmal. And it was one of the recommendations of the Jerry Warrow report targeting zero that interpreters need to be used. So, and given that my experience with talking to a vast range of people on the phones in my office, also sometimes we... We talk their language. So if you're talking to a truck driver or somebody that's, you know, that wants the lowdown in a few seconds and if you say, hey, mate, look, you know, not losing your professional voice but engaging in a language that's easy to for them to hear, I think that's something that we try to do in our office, answering calls from patients. 
Absolutely. And and it's not just, I mean, we get taught this whole new language in medical school and we actually need to unlearn it to, to speak to people. We forget that we have this whole different lexicon. Um, and often, I don't think doctors realise sometimes when they're explaining things to patients that they're using the jargon. But it's it's hard. The only real way to know whether you're the person that you're looking after understands you is actually to use something called teach-back. I don't know if you're familiar with it. So basically, as soon as you explain to someone um, or listen, you know, you've come up with a management plan for how to, you know, what you think might make them better and you say, well, maybe if we did this and this. And then you say, well, for, I'll give you an example. So I, I um, look after patients with latent tuberculosis and to, to have this, they need to take a medicine every day. Um, and I explain to them the side effects of the medicine, ask them, to tell them the pros and cons of why they should take it or not, and, and say, well, what do you think? And I say, look, I'm not sure if I've explained this properly. Could you tell me what your understanding is so I make sure that I've told you the right information? And so then they explain it in their own terms and I can understand then if they've understood it. Mm-hmm. And 90% of my patients um, who have latent tuberculosis speak a language other than English. So we're doing this all through an interpreter. I also use um, drawings mm-hmm. and I'm a terrible artist, but it makes gets a giggle, but it also helps me to clarify if, if we're on the same page, literally. <laughs> it's so, because I work in the field of education, education as well. So we've, we try everything. So we've got an app, we've got a DVD, we've got translated documents, we've got, uh, we've just sp- um, employed a cartoon group and we've written a song. So I th- you've just said identified possibly um, different languages. I've only got it in English at the moment. But there's such a broad spectrum of people that we will cut, that we will be talking to and treating that if you can, if there's one little spot that you can, that ticks a box for them, I think that sounds like such a good way to connect with them. And absolutely, and the best way to know, and th- what's interesting is that not every patient, obviously, not every patient is the same, not every person is the same, and some people want to know every last thing about their, their condition and their health condition. Other people say, actually... We'd love you to make that decision. And so the, I think the crux of good person-centred care is to engage with people as, as on their terms and what they'd like to know. I've been a doctor in this country for nearly 30 years. I still can't quite bring myself to refer to a patient as mate. <laughs> <laughs> it amazes me how often patients call me mate. Oh, how are you, mate? And I think, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've used it that often, but I know what you mean. <laughs> So, so nurse, uh, so um, misdiagnosis. Uh, I'm really intrigued by your being um, taught these great communication skills, and at, at, you know, before you launch into being a doctor, you know, uh, it would be lovely to know that you can keep those skills up. And yeah, I mean, I hope I can. <laughs> I think um, there is this phenomena in the literature, which is a sort of a third year compassion burnout in medical students, where. You know, we're we're at medical school, we're in lectures, we're with each other for the first two years. And then we get to third year and we get into the hospitals and all of a sudden we've got exams, we've got things to learn, we've got long lists of drugs and side effects that consultants quiz us on and no one really cares if we can have a good rapport with the patient, unfortunately, even though to me that seems like one of the most important things. Do do you think you as a person... have a voice when you're with a consultant in the ward and say, I don't feel I've um, spent enough time with this person? Or I think it entirely depends on the consultant. <laughs> 
And actually, that's what that's what happens in terms of whether you feel comfortable to spend time with your patients is the role modelling that happens. I'm just going to introduce um, Miss Diagnosis, who's got a couple of things that she'd like to talk about. So Miss Diagnosis is a third-year medical student, and really, I'm just going to pass it to you, Miss Diagnosis. Yeah, that's that's where my CV starts and finishes <laughs> at the moment, I'm afraid. I don't have two consultancies under my belt quite yet. Um, so I guess it's with a bit of a viral undertone today, the thing that I'd like to talk about is the HTLV1 virus. So that stands for the human T lymphotropic virus type 1, which is a retrovirus, meaning that it's similar to HIV in the way that it's transmitted. So this virus is a virus that we've actually known about for a very long time. It was discovered actually before HIV um, in the 1980s. And it's sort of, you know, being called the orphan virus. It's gone into obscurity a little bit. However, the thing that's really significant about this HTLV1 virus is that we have rates of up to a thousand times that of other countries in Australia, especially in the Indigenous population um, around Central Australia, so around the sort of Alice Springs area. And I mean, I think the main thing is, you know, not being a consultant, not having sort of all of that under my belt. I'm just sort of picking up on the things that I find interesting and that I'm looking at. And I saw this in the news and I thought, wow, you know, there must be this big sort of public health response to this. If we've got rates of a thousand times in central Australia. And yet there's basically nothing so far. Maybe because it's not got a buzzy name Oh, HTLV1, you don't think that's, that's buzzy enough? <laughs> no, it, look, it, it is a bit of a mouthful. But, I mean, I think the main thing with this particular viral infection is that, you know, as I said, in Central Australia, it's up to sort of, you know, between 40% of some of the Indigenous communities that are affected by this. And, you know, sometimes you look at these sort of viral infections and you think, is it because it's in a community that's harder to reach? You know, we don't have a lot of testing going on for it. But why does it matter? What does HTLV1 yeah, what does do, do to people? I, that's a very good question. So, I mean, sometimes it does do very much and then sometimes it does some really really nasty things so it does depend on the viral load how much of it you have in your system um, but it can cause you know all sorts of things from leukemias in sort of five to ten percent of the infected population um, to lung conditions a thing called bronchiectasis that I don't know that much about to be honest um, <laughs> And you know, and and it can it does reduce your um, your immune response, so it can predispose you to getting other kind of infections, and you know, infections with things like little worms, nematodes, things like that. I mean, I was astonished when I first heard this story because, like you, I only heard about this this year, and yet this has been going on for over thirty years. Mm. It's an epidemic of viral infection in our indigenous community. It's not unlike HIV. In fact, HIV I think was originally called HTLV three, wasn't it? Um, so but the initial naming of HIV was very similar to this virus. Here we have a virus rampaging through our indigenous community, causing similar problems with suppressing immune systems, sometimes causing very severe disease, and it's been ignored. I, I think that's extraordinary. So are there treatments? Are there... So as of yet, there aren't any treatments. Um, so we know how it's transmitted, which is um, it can be through breast milk and it can be through um, blood contact, so whether that's sharing needles um, or through unprotected sex. But, you know, at the moment, we don't, we don't have a treatment for it. And even the testing for HTLV1 is a little bit absurd. We don't have a rapid test that we can use. It's not easy to test for. And yet we've got these rates that are just so high compared to a lot of other countries. And is this an Australian-only prob- problem or has this been found 
found elsewhere and dealt with properly? Well, it actually has been found elsewhere and it's been dealt with differently elsewhere. So um, there are high rates in Japan um, and a couple of other countries. And I think the thing that seems most disappointing is there's actually an HTLV1 task force that was developed by the World Health Organization in 2014 to sort of manage and deal with this. And guess who was absent from the task force? Mm. Yes, Australia. So we weren't we weren't actually part of that task force. And you know, I don't I don't know why this is uh, why this has been so ignored, and, and it is such an sort of an orphaned virus. But you know, I think it's a really interesting one to put out. And there. what have they done overseas to try and deal with this problem? Has there been any effective intervention? Um, so they've looked at testing and they're trialling different drug, drug treatments, certainly in Japan. I think they've managed to reduce the transmission rate in Japan by 80% through education um, and through, you know, testing as well. Mm, mm, very interesting. And you did mention another topic to me that piques your interest. Another topic that piques my interest. Well, I think being a medical student, there's a, there's a lot that piques my interest. And so I'm very good at knowing a little bit about a few things, but not very much about anything in particular. <laughs> You've got to start somewhere. No, exactly. I, the other thing that I was sort of very interested, I was um, lucky enough to go to a Women in Medicine event um, earlier this week. Um, that was run by Doctors for the Environment, looking at uh, the impact of um, so the the impact of climate change on health. Because I think often when we think about climate change and we think about the climate, we think about you know temperatures rising and um, you know places going underwater and that kind of thing. But we don't actually think how this will affect you know the health of of our population. Um, and so one of the interesting bits of research that I pulled up when I was having a bit of a read about this um, was that Australia's healthcare system actually contributes up to 7% of the nation's carbon footprint, which is an enormous amount. That mm. is astonishing. It is. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute... Cra- and actually, when you work in the hospital system, you realise why I mean, there's so many disposables and we actually don't think at all about that. And that actually is something... There are some researchers looking at, at how we mm. can reduce the carbon footprint. It's yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and we, we look in the hospital systems and, again, in medical school we're taught about, um, you know, sort of hand hygiene and we're taught sort of all the dis- disposable instruments and things we use to keep infection rates low, which, of course, is fantastic. But when we look at these instruments that we're using, the sort of, the, you know, the cradle-to-grave cycle of these instruments, you know, they're often developed in, you know, in places in India and they're shipped somewhere else and then they finally make it to Australia in these little plastic packages. We open them. Sometimes they don't even get used in the surgeries that they've been, you know, they've been sort of opened up for and then they just get thrown in the bin and that's, that's the end of it. I think, I think we all have to do something about this. The, the packaging is another thing that completely astonishes me. There's, there's a type of antipsychotic injection which has to be given every couple of weeks that comes in a large cardboard box which comes in another plastic wrapped box and then every individual item within that plastic wrapped box is again wrapped so when I've, when I've given one of these injections, my garbage bin is full. Mm. And I give multiple of these every month. And there must be thousands of them given around the country every month. This is astonishing waste. So, so have you written to the drug company? No. <laughs> 
But I think it's it's interesting because we think about sort of um, you know reusable things and disposable things, and we think that's really where the money is. But in actual fact, there's some research being done into anaesthetic gases, and it turns out that some of the anaesthetic gases that we use are a huge contributor to um, our carbon emissions within the hospital system. And there are some really basic things that we can do, not in all cases, but in some cases, to change from using a particular type of anaesthetic gas to maybe an IV medication or a different type of gas. And when I heard that, I thought, why haven't we done this already? Why haven't we just switched over to using this other gas? But I think, you know, as maybe the people around this table can attest, doctors are sort of relatively reluctant to change their practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sadly. Um, So that's fantastic misdiagnosis. I'm really, what a really interesting topics you've brought to us today. And I would now like to introduce Dr Nick, who's got some really hot topics to talk about. Nick, over to you. Yes, I'm very keen to talk a bit about the um, furor that was in the news this week about the clinic in Eltham, which was charging more for patients to see a female doctor than a male doctor. But before we come on to that one, um, because the vote in Ireland... Uh, It hasn't been finally counted, but it seems fairly clear from exit polls and the early counting that there's been a massive swing in support of and that will support the legislation to allow abortion to occur in Ireland. Yay! Which, I mean, to my mind, having lived in England for uh, most of my adult life, um, Ireland was such a conservative country. In the last... Um, few months they've legalised gay marriage and now they're allowing abortion it's just this incredible turnaround for this country which I, I think is extraordinary and wonderful news but it made me think a little bit about what had happened previously. I mean, we know that in Ireland, uh, women were going by the thousand every year, about 3,000 women a year uh, were making the trip over to England to procure abortions. And there were probably multiple women every day who were buying the abortion pills online illegally because they could be prosecuted for doing so. Nobody ever was, but it was possible that they could be. Um, now, uh, once the law changes, it will be legal to have abortion in Ireland. But people may not realise that um, abortion law here in Australia is state and territory based. Uh, and in Queensland and New South Wales, abortion is still illegal. Yes. I had no idea. Yes. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it, that in uh, Australia in 2018, two of our major states, uh, the formal case around abortion is that it's illegal, except in extreme circumstances. So the way this law is got around, to use some appalling grammar, apologies, um, <laughs> is, is that uh, it is legal in those two states in the extreme circumstances where there is a severe risk to the life of the woman. I don't know the exact legal phrasings, but it's, it's very restrictive in the legal phrase. Uh, that is used as the excuse for getting around it and allowing abortion to occur. So, so what is, could you step us through what is the procedure for a person, for a woman to have a termination in, in Victoria? So in Victoria, uh, the laws are very different in that um, abortion is legal 
uh, up until 24 weeks, um, pretty much in all circumstances. I say that in a very general sense because I don't want to go into the legalities because practically a woman who chooses an abortion, uh, even up to 24 weeks, is able to get one. Even after 24 weeks, uh, as long as there is the consent of two doctors and there needs to be some serious reason for the risk to the woman or because of a serious problem with the baby, uh, after 10, 24 weeks it is still possible. So I think in the old days we did have to have two doctors that had to sign off on a on a, a termination, whereas now a woman can go to a clinic and just see a doctor and go ahead with the procedure. Is that correct? So if we look at the... the, the earlier stage abortion, let's say under 12 weeks, which is the more common time when a woman would try and procure an abortion. Um, there, there are different ways of doing it now because there are medical abortions where you can take medication which is effective, which is provided through registered clinics and a very effective, safe way of having a termination and there, then there are surgical terminations still provided. It interests me that uh, um, in the 30 years I've been working in general practice, I used to refer a young woman for abortion um, on a fairly regular basis and in the last couple of years I haven't had to do it at all. Now I don't believe this is because everyone's suddenly being so careful and everyone stopped having sex and getting pregnant uh, but I do think it's probably because it is now much more possible to self-refer and because medical abortion is more easily available. People don't even need to come to their GPs to get that kind of avenue to assistance. Is it also possible that some of the contraception um, devices are long-term and easily accepted so like the impenon and um, the long-term injections for uh, prostaglandins I, I would completely love to believe it's because we're all being so responsible and <laughs> educating our young women and they're all using condoms with new partners and having effective <laughs> contraception um, however it has to be said that when I started practice back in the late 80s there was still effective contraception available then the HIV epidemic was at its height and condoms were being thrown around at parties and given away free everywhere because we wanted people to use <laughs> people still managed to get pregnant so I'm not quite sure it's just an anecdotal experience that uh, I'm not seeing so many people coming for termination. Do, was there a catalyst in Ireland to start this um, debate and public vote? There, there was an absolutely appalling case where a woman who um, uh, was pregnant, who was having a miscarriage and uh, the miscarriage wasn't proceeding healthily and she really needed surgery to um, make her miscarriage complete so that she was okay and they wouldn't do that uh, and she got infection uh, and they still wouldn't treat that miscarriage in the way that would normally be treated in order to save the woman's life because the unborn baby's life was paramount even though that baby was dying uh, and the woman got infection and she died. A, a completely preventable, unnecessary death, and this was the catalyst for for this uh, law reform. Mm. So, I, uh, if only she were alive today to see it. But uh, mm. it maybe some slight, small compensation to her family to know that this is the trigger for this change. Mm. Massive change. Mm. I mean, you know, if you look back at sort of Ireland, it is it was a relatively punitive system. I, when I was reading about this, when the referendum was sort of coming to pass. If you, as a woman, if you had been raped and became pregnant from that rape, your rapist would get less time in jail if they were convicted than you would if you were convicted for using abortion medication. I mean, I just think that's absurd. Oh, dark ages. 
I mean, I, do, I, I understand at one level the um, people whose belief in the sanctity of life, that the unborn baby's rights are paramount. I respect at one level people's view to have that uh, concern. But that piece of information you've just given us, that the rapist would get less jail time than the woman who had an abortion is absolutely that absurd it's just unbelievable yeah. so the other thing i that, but I, I i get really interested in this one because this came up this week about the clinic in eltham that was charging more for a patient to see a female doctor uh, than to see a male doctor and uh, this got into the news and it's causing uh, people love getting it hot on the call it was a seven dollar difference in the gap and, uh, and yet yeah, this is being referred to the health complaints commissioner and Greg Hunt's got involved and I mean just fantastic uproar over this and it's being described as discrimination I'm not quite sure where the discrimination is because it's not discriminating <laughs> against anyone's paying women more for doing the same job, which I thought was something we were trying to do. But, uh, but uh, misdiagnosis is looking at me as if I'm going to get hit, so I'm going to hide away and ask her to say something. <laughs> I, I was just wondering, where did the $7 go? Did it go to the female doctors? Did it go to the practice? Uh, that's a good question. My assumption is that the doctors are working uh, under the usual arrangement where they get a percentage, so they would have got a percentage of that extra money. Um, I mean, this is based on, uh, this is known anecdotally and it's known from research that women doctors tend to do longer consultations, they spend more time with their patients and overall generate less income per hour than male GPs. This is a well-known, this is a fact. How, how does that work out? Because if you're charging, let, let's just use a round figure, let's say you charge $60 for a consultation uh, and that's for a standard consultation. Whether that consultation takes 8 minutes or 18 minutes, it's still that $60. Mm-hmm. So if you see 5 patients in an hour, you generate $300. If you see 4 patients in an hour, you generate $240 oh, yep. because the cost is the same. I'd love to look at this in the physician world because anecdotally I've spoken with my female physicians. We all work more spend more time on ward rounds than our male colleagues mm. it's just we do we, we talk to our patients yeah, and so listen to our patients so, so not the, saying that the men don't but we no. seem to spend more time mm. and we know this is the case now what what was i think the, the fundamental mistake about this clinic is they they made this a gender divide they said we're doing this by women doctors and men doctors not saying that dr sally x is charging this and dr phil y is charging something else they made it by gender if they just said these are our doctor's charges and not labelled it by gender, I don't think there would have been a problem. Uh, doctors are entitled to charge whatever they like. I've always thought it's slightly daft at one level that our clinic, a doctor like myself with 30 years' experience in general practice, charges exactly the same as a doctor who's been there for 10 minutes. But we choose to do that because we don't want to imply that there's a kind of hierarchy of service that's available. In reality, there probably is a hierarchy of service that's available. Yes, yes. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be better at it. The hierarchy, I might be at the bottom because the new person might be fresh out of some education and training. I might be stale and jaded. Uh, so we choose to charge the same. But there's, in theory, no reason why doctors shouldn't. It's a private system. They can charge whatever the hell they like. But I think also with you know what you're saying about having been at a practice for 30 years versus a doctor who's just arrived, that doctor can also use your expertise within the consultation if they have questions. So it's you're paying for the whole system of the practice that you're in, essentially, not just that individual doctor, because you do consult with each other. Correct. 
Yes, and I've when patients do ask me um, where's a good jo- GP, I, the advice I give them is go and talk to somebody in their area and also choose a clinic where there are more than one um, GPs because there's that collegial setup where there's journal clubs and if you have a tricky patient they can go and talk to about talk you know share the um, ex- the the problem with another GP and. Uh, you know, uh, so, so the final thing I just want to touch on quickly with the last couple of minutes because it. again this got me very hot under the collar when it was in the news this week was the whole concept of mandatory sentencing when there are assaults on healthcare workers and this of course came out of the uproar over ambulance workers being assaulted and severely injured uh, and the people who did it in a sense being let off in inverted commas no jail sentence because they were affected by drugs or alcohol at the time and so the call has been that any Anyone who assaults a healthcare worker should have a mandatory jail sentence as a result. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I've spoken to lawyers and I've heard lawyers talk about this on many occasions, and it really really irritates me uh, when people use just sort of basic emotion and vote buying uh, to to form policy rather than people actually know what they're talking about because all the legals who know what they're talking about say mandatory sentencing does not work and to me as a doctor I've got patients who might assault me the people who might assault me are very different there's some of them who I want to see stuck in jail because the, <clears throat> because they are responsible for their actions, and if they chose to assault me, they should be jailed. But there are other people who are severely impaired, and if they did assault me, much though I wouldn't like it, I would not want them in jail. They should not be mandatory sentencing. Yeah, I think that it's ridiculous, and I wonder if they actually consulted with healthcare workers about this. As someone who has been assaulted in a healthcare system, um, uh, the patients who assault are often are so unwell. And if it seems like the most ridiculous... Would you want the person who assaulted you put in jail? No, not necessarily. It really, you know, if they... You've got to look at the circumstances under which everything happens and look at it on an individual basis. But I don't think a jail sentence is the cure for someone who's unwell, feeling frustrated with the system and... It's a very, very knee-jerk reaction, do you think? Yeah, very... Yeah. Well, it's just, it's populism, isn't it? Because yeah. it's seen as being tough on crime. It's, it's not uh, having any sympathy for people who behave badly. And, and I do have great sympathy. If I was an ambulance worker, I would be, I would be absolutely furious if I'm going to tend to someone. And that, that, that poor man who got severely injured um, and hasn't been able to work since. I mean, that's an appalling thing to happen. Um, so I'm not taking away from the fact that this should not happen and healthcare workers should have a right to practice in safety. But again, we have to go back to people who know what they're talking about. The people who've researched this stuff, the lawyers who are involved in this, tell us that mandatory sentencing simply does not work. It's not appropriate. And that makes sense to me at a gut level Mm. because Mm. there are nuances to everything in life. And Mm. people who assault healthcare workers are not some homogenous group, all of whom are bad people who should be stuck in jail. Incarceration is not the right option. Yes. Yes. Well said. Um... I think that's been a pretty hot show today. Wow, we've had some really interesting speakers and talks. Actually, there's one more comment. I just, I just wanted to say thank you so much for oh. having me. It's been an absolute pleasure and oh. an honour to be able to <laughs> thank be you on for here. coming. Thank you for being on. So, Dr. Nadia Chaves and Dr. Nick. Thanks, Beth. And Miss Diagnosis. And I am going to sign off, Nurse EpiPen. Thank you. Bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.